find ourselves in a very similar situation. As followers of Christ, we have an old self and we have a new self. And sometimes they are seemingly at odds. Now here's the thing, we're not alone in asking this question, who am I? It's not something new that people are just now beginning to ask. It isn't some 21st century psychological phenomena that's just now sweeping the world. This question is inherently ingrained in all of us. And we've all asked it, like I said, either out loud, maybe we're not so bold, but we've asked it in our hearts, in our inner being. We ask, who am I? Like, what am I doing here? And we've seen examples of humanity asking this question, like the ancient Greeks, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, they were always looking for their place in the stars. Like, where are we in regards to this? Where are we and what is the meaning of life? You know, these important questions we all ask at certain points. And I think that what is the meaning of life question boiled down is really who am I? You know, who am I in this story, in this grand narrative? Our life is like a vapor. It's just a mist, is what Andrew said last week. But there's hope. There's an answer to that. Let's look. Even Jesus himself asks a similar question. Let's look in Matthew 16, 13 through 16. Jesus asks a very similar question. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you allow us to gather here together, and that you've given us your word to show us where we should really look for our identity. Lord, I pray that everyone here We all have questions in our heart. Some we're willing to ask out loud and some we're too scared to let surface. Lord Jesus, I pray that you can touch our hearts and soften us to your tender word and we can look to the character of your son and who he says that he is and we can trust him at his word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we get to the importance of Jesus' question and of Peter's answer, let's go back and look at that original question, who am I? And, like, this question is deep. Like, no cap. This is, like, a super deep question. Like, it's the universal, like, human question that we've asked throughout the echoes of the ages. So when we here in San Angelo, Texas, of all places, in March 2021, when we ask that question, who are we asking? What do we mean? Who are we turning to for help? What, What frame of reference do we have when we're on this identity odyssey that we're all a part of? Many times I believe we would naturally begin by looking at our family and our upbringing. And I think this is important. It may seem a little out there, but if you notice, you know, when we're born, we all have our last name and it comes from our father. If you're Irish, you know, of Connor, O'Connor, O'Malley, of Malley, you know, Thor, Odin's son, you know, we know right away he's Odin's son. It's pretty lame, but we figure it out. Jesus, Bar Joseph, even Jean Valjean, the original character from Les Mis, we can see where our last names can show us the first step on our journey for identity. Let's go back even a little bit further for now, and let's look at the late 80s and early 90s. We're going to talk about some movies. How many of you guys have seen Santa Claus? It's, yeah, it's deserving of some woos. Um, what about Hook? That's a little better. I agree, I agree. What about Jingle All the Way? Ooh, oh, yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a movie. Um, I'm going to say, like, Santa Claus will give it, like, a 7. Hook, I'll say 8.5. Jingle All the Way is, like, a 4. But 
That's okay. When I was a kid, they were all like tens. You know, these are great movies. You know, it's easy to be pleased, and and I wasn't a movie critic back then. And so, all of these movies in my lifetime, I watched. You know, in my childhood or in my upbringing, and I loved them. And they all came out around a similar-ish time. Santa Claus, interestingly, is like mid-80s, which blew my mind. I thought it was way closer than that. Jingle All the Way is the newest one in 1995. But they all have a similar theme. They all have a father who's overworked, and he doesn't spend time with his son, period. Those are the movies, just reskinned. So much so that I was watching Hook with my wife Casey recently, and I was like, is this just... Instead of Tim Allen as Santa Claus, the dude's Peter Pan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same thing true with Jingle All the Way. If you haven't seen it, he becomes Turbo Man, his son's favorite superhero action figure. But it's the same thing. It's a father who works too much and doesn't spend time with his son. And that's the movie, you know? And that's really it. And for them to make that many different movies, these are just a few. There's so many movies with that theme. But for them to make that many movies shows that that topic, that theme was prevalent during the audience in that time, in that age. You guys know, right, that you choose what movies come out next. Like, you guys. Have you ever heard, like, your dollar is your vote? You guys choose what movies come out. If the movie sells well and people, like, like it, they'll come out with another one reskinned a few years later. Same thing is true of video games, same thing is true as even books, you know? We've got romance novels that fill up entire bookstores and none of them are any good. Sorry. Sorry, Rita's book exchange. She's really nice. She's really nice. Um, but you, you guys get to choose as an audience what comes out next. And so that means that at this time, for them to keep making movies about fathers not spending time with their sons shows us that that was really prevalent in that day and age. And there are plenty more examples of this sort of theme. I could just pick a few. And so I think that one of these factors of the family unit kind of breaking down is contributing to the difficulty in answering, who am I? We ask, who am I? We used to look to our family. But the family, if your dad's not around, you don't really have a frame of reference to answer that identity question. In the past, someone could look at their family and say, oh, I know who I am because I know who's my brother, who's my sister, my father, my mother, you know, where are my cousins, my grandparents. But when you don't have a family to look to, you're at a really disadvantage at a starting place for searching for your identity. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? And, and it's something that we're just now starting to realize. This is a pretty new phenomenon. And so it's okay if we don't fully understand it, and I'm not gonna go deep into the breakdown of the family unit, but it is really pivotal in the understanding of the identity question that we have. And some of us are so blessed to have a good family to turn to and people that can support us, but many of us do not have that. And I think that this is a strong contributor to this identity crisis that we're seeing. And now earlier in the semester, Scroggins pointed out some of the unworthy idols in the Old Testament. You know, Moloch, Baal, Asheroth, they represented power, sex, and wealth. And he told us that we still worship these idols even today. We see that the fathers in these movies were all finding their identity in wealth. But if you've seen these movies, you know they always find true happiness with their family in the end, because Hollywood and Peter Pan and the guy finds his marbles and magic and all that stuff. And there's plenty of other movies we can pull from to talk about sex or power and the allure of those things. But even beyond these three, wealth, sex, and power, I'm gonna highlight three more unworthy identities that are more insidious. 
They're more sneaky. And as Christians, we have often fallen prey to. And so as I address these three, keep in the back of your mind the question we always ask. Why do I do the things I do? And who do I do them for? And these are the three unworthy identities. We have people who are Christians out of hope and fear. And remember Scroggins talking about the Tower of Babel. They were doing something good. They said, let's build this so that we can meet with God. They were hoping for a relationship with God to please him so that they could be blessed. They were doing it for themselves, though. Remember he said they were doing it out of a selfish motive. And sometimes we do things or we walk with God because we're afraid of hell or punishment or God's wrath, but that's not a good motivator either. Another one, and I fall into this category often, is being a people pleaser. I might do something for someone else or serve someone so that I can hear a praise of approval or that someone can notice. You know what I mean? And on the outside, it may seem like I'm serving someone, but really I'm just serving myself. I'm just still looking for my identity in the approval of others. And so as Christians, we have to be wary of these things. On the outside, it may look good, but on the inside, we know our hearts. The third of these is the carnal Christian. All three, you can see, are selfish, and this is the scariest of all. These are like the Pharisees who don't really ever have their heart changed. And Jesus says, you are a brood of vipers. You are whitewashed tombs. You know, he calls them out the most. And that's something that it's really hard for us to see. You could look good on the outside, but why are you doing the things you're doing, and who are you doing them for? And so as I transition to the next point here, Jesus is worthy. This is, spoiler alert, this is the answer, you know. We have carnal Christianity, which was having the wrong heart. But we need to look and pay attention to all of the words of Jesus. This is why being familiar with the Bible is so important. We can't be just lukewarm and pick and choose the verses that we like. We either take him at his word or we leave him. That's it. He's either worthy of everything in our life or he's not worthy of anything. That's it. He's either simply worthy or he's simply not. There's no half measures. Let's look back to our passage from Matthew 16. Jesus asks, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or another prophet. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this is important. Jesus asks two questions here. He wants to know what the people say, but then even after that, he goes right to his disciples, and he wants to know what they say. And this second question, this direct question, is important because it shows that it doesn't matter what the world says about Jesus. He wants to know what his close followers, his small group, what they have to say about him. And if you know a little bit of context about Jewish history, for Peter to say that Jesus is the Messiah is otherworldly. That is a a no-no. Jesus can't be the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to kill everybody in Rome, and we're going to ride on, you know, that's what they thought. They thought the Messiah was going to lead them in battle, destroy everyone in Rome, and set up a kingdom in Rome. But Peter is watching Jesus heal people. This is right after he fed 5,000. And Peter's starting to realize that this guy is the Messiah. This guy is the Son of God. He is who he says he is. And now this is important in our own walk with God. We sometimes come to him with expectations about what he's going to do 
or a way that he's going to bless us, or he'll tell me this answer if I pray or if I fast. And we kind of put God in a box. And that's not the way that it works. And if Jesus doesn't answer the way we expect, sometimes we, we start to water down the gospel. We sort of write our own narrative about him. And this is a dangerous, slippery slope towards not even following Jesus in Scripture, the way that he actually truly appears. C.S. Lewis warns us with a nice quote here. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. And Lewis's words are bold. You know, it's, it's kind of jarring to see someone say, Jesus could be the devil of hell. That's kind of scary. You know, we don't like that. But his words are true. You've probably heard people say, I like some of Jesus' teachings, but I don't want to follow him. That makes no sense at all. If you actually read scripture, that is an impossible way to live your life. Because he says, I am the son of God. A good moral teacher does not make a claim of divinity like that. He would be a crazy person, a megalomaniac, a cult leader. So he either is who he says he is, or he's a lunatic. He can't be just a good moral teacher. He has to be Lord and Savior. We like the Savior part, but we don't like the Lord part. There can be no middle ground. He is either a fool or madman, or he is the Son of God. He's either worthy of none of our life, and everything he said should be thrown out the window, or he's worthy of every bit of our life, and we should cling to every word he ever said. So if we believe this, if we do believe that he wasn't a crazy person, then how do we find our true identity? I talked about we have that question, and Jesus says, who do they say I am? Messiah, son of the living God. How do we find our true identity in Jesus Christ? The last point we have, finding our identity in Christ, is giving up control. This is the last point. This is the hardest point. This is the daily progress we all should be undertaking. And up to this point, some of you guys are probably like, okay, this is nothing new, Ryan. I know that Jesus is the only one worthy of my life. I know my identity comes from God. Scroggins preaches over and over again. We're made in the image of God. The Hebrew word, selim, you know, we're an idol of God. I get it. Just hold with me for just a few more questions. We've all asked, who am I? What am I doing here? Why am I studying this major? Why am I in this relationship? Why am I working this unfulfilling job, you know? What's the point of it all? These questions make up the heartbeat of who we truly are. But sometimes we like to avoid answering them. How many of us here like busyness? We like to just do things. We just keep going and going and there we go. We got a couple honest people. 
we like to busy ourselves with things, just things, not necessarily important things, but things. And I do this sometimes. I like doing things. I like feeling productive or efficient or whatever word we want to use to cloak it. And sometimes I even busy myself by doing things when I know I should be doing something else. If you've ever noticed uh, when David, right before he sees Bathsheba, it says it's at a time when kings should be at war. David should have been at war. He should have been fulfilling his duties and responsibilities as a king, but he wasn't being responsible to what he should have been doing. And then guess what? Something really bad happens. That's kind of a pattern. I'll give you that one for free. <laughs> How many of you guys have done this, though? Like, you've got like a five-page paper due tomorrow morning, and you haven't even started, and you're like, yo, my room, I should clean it right now. My room is so dirty. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean my room. I'm going to honor God. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah, that paper, I, I'm going to clean my room, you know. And we do this, and it's comical. I've done this. But it's because I don't want to do the paper. It's not because I want to clean my room, you know. All those dishes, yes, now is the time. But you're right, I'll be a good roommate. That paper can wait. I'm going to honor my roommates. <laughs> or are you just doing it for yourself because you don't want to do the paper? I mean, that presentation, it's fine. It can wait. <laughs> it's funny because it's so true. We've all done it. We like to put those things off, you know. Or it's the other way around. I can even call out our finances. How many of you guys don't ever even like logging into your bank account because you're afraid or even embarrassed of what you might find there, you know? But it's so true. We're just avoiding it. We're just sweeping it under the rug, you know? We're not afraid of what we might find there. We're afraid of what we might not find in the bank account, you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, those are a lot of zeros. Okay. Not with the number in front after, yeah. But we do that. We busy ourselves with things even sometimes good things, like we said, the Tower of Babel, they were trying to do a good thing for God, but they were doing it for themselves. We busy ourselves to hide from real responsibility of doing what we should be doing. But sometimes we do this on an even bigger scale. Like, we busy ourselves with the day-to-day, going to class, working the job, making money, saving money, so that we don't ever have to address the real questions about what we're doing with our time as the days turn to weeks, weeks to months, months to years. And so many people in this life wake up one day and they're like, what have I done? What have I wasted? Why have I, how did I get here? And that's not the way that Christians should live. We shouldn't live under this pretense of busyness to no end, to avoid the real true questions of our heart. Why am I here? What am I doing? These are questions that the Bible is big enough to answer. We all have those questions, like, what should I do with the next year of my life? Look to the Bible. Jesus is an example, you know? Sometimes we just need to to catch our breath and spend some quiet time alone with the Lord, you know, so that every time someone asks us how we're doing, we don't have to say, I'm just tired, I'm just tired, you know? We always answer that. Why are we, we sleep, but why are we still always tired? Why is that? It's because we have to change the symptom. We have to actually change something. We keep doing, you know, the definition of insanity, the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And then years pass, and you're like, what have I done with my life? You know, what is my life? The Bible has the answers. Jesus has answers, I promise you. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he says that sometimes we put off this quiet time with the Lord 
because we fear that in silence our insecurities will rise up. We're so afraid of silence because then we're human, we're vulnerable. He says that's why Christians don't fast. Because when we fast, we're reminded that we're frail and broken and we need food to survive. I'm like, bro, calm down. He's going right for the heart, you know? But it's so true. We don't like being reminded of our own mortality. That's why fasting is good for us, because it gives us a dependence upon Jesus. That's why when he started his ministry, he went 40 days without food right away, because he knew that he needed to spend time with the Father before he went out to the people. So if we are to be ministers to the people around us as Christians, which we should be, we've got to spend time alone with the Lord. We've got to address these questions of identity, whether just personally between you and the Lord or in your small group. These things can't be swept under the rug for years and years because then you'll wake up one day and wonder where the time went and you'll be sad. Regardless of our tendencies, When we truly examine our thoughts and the cry of our heart, we find this sense of longing. We find some sort of void. Scripture says eternity, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We have a a God-shaped hole in our hearts that can only be filled by turning to him with these questions of identity. We cannot continue to try to find our identity in these other places. We're like a, a toddler trying to take those blocks and fit the star shape in the triangle and it just doesn't fit. And we take the square and shove it in the circle and it does not fit because we have an eternal void in our heart and only eternity can fill it. It sounds so simple, but we keep trying to fill it with power or wealth or sex or we keep trying to fill it with the approval of others or hope and fear or those things. When Jesus just says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To paraphrase a C.S. Lewis quote, he says this. He says, we may often spend our days feeling like we're on the wrong side of a door. And think and imagine with me, I felt this. We see splendors around us, beautiful things that we cannot fully partake in. But the New Testament is rustling with rumors that it will not always be so. Beautiful language from Lewis. We feel as if we're just trying to get to the door and get to the other side of it with everything that we do. We're like running on the treadmill and we just can't get anywhere. That door is still just out of reach. But the New Testament is wrestling with rumors that it will not always be so. When we read the Bible, we can see hope. We can see that we were made to find our identity in the nature and character of Jesus. To quote this succinct summary from Winky Prattney, He says it so simply, God is God, and you are not. And that's it. That's the secret. God is God, and you are not. If we want to really find the answer to the identity question that we all have, we have to let go of control and actually humbly admit and live out the fact that God is God, and we are not. I don't know how many of you know the poem Invictus. You might not know it by that title, but it was written by a guy named William Ernest Henley. And he wrote it kind of as a a way to have some sort of solace for he was dying of tuberculosis. And this poem, again, you might not know his story, but you'll have heard the words, I'm pretty sure. The last quatrain, the last stanza of it goes like this. It matters not how straight the gate, 
how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Have some of you guys heard that before? Perhaps. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. Talking about scripture, he was not a believer, but he's quoting kind of in a, a satirical way scripture. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He said this while he lay in a bed dying of a disease he had no complete control over. So I don't know enough about him to know whether he believed it or if he was just trying to find some words because he didn't have his identity founded in Jesus. He was trying to find some way to feel better about it. And he died there. Many, many years later, the Oklahoma City bomber, Timothy McVeigh, used those same exact words as his famous last words, you know, while he was strapped to a chair and administered a lethal injection. He said, I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And he was no more. The irony is tragic. These are the tragic laments of men who, even in their dying breath, cannot let go of control. The secret to finding our identity is to let go and give up control. And that's it. We must let go of the reins that we have on our life. We, we want to know what tomorrow brings, and we want to have complete control over the next step. And Jesus says, just come to me. That's all it is. You know, we must not only memorize the verse, his ways are higher than my ways, but we've got to live it out. We can't just say, I must become lesser so that he can become greater and tattoo it on our chest. But we've actually got to mean it. What does that phrase mean? I must become lesser so that he can become greater? That inherently means suffering and hardships. You know, that means dangerous things are going to come. Perils. But he's becoming greater, so it's worth it. When we become lesser, suffering will occur. But we've got to choose suffering for Christ's sake over security for our sake. And this is so important, guys. We have to choose suffering for Christ's sake over security for our sake. Dick Brogdon says, any decision made in self-preservation is an indicator of one already dead. Oh, I'm going to store up my grain in the silos for the years to come. It sounds like a wise plan, and we should save, but why are we doing the things we're doing? And who are we doing them for? Are we doing them because we want control over next year's harvest? Or are we doing them because we say, all right, Lord, if I give you this, you'll multiply it and take care of me? We must choose suffering for Christ's sake over security for our sake. If we are choosing for security, we are, it's an indicator that we're already dead. And that's it. As the worship team comes back up and we close, I would just like us to, to take time to think about those concepts that we ask, who am I? Jesus says, who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he gives us the answer to that identity question. When Henley was dying of tuberculosis and he says, with defiance and utter disregard for Christ and his word, he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But he wasn't, and he isn't, and he never could be. His body was decaying to a disease he couldn't do anything about. 
McVeigh was strapped to a chair, and because of the consequences of his actions, he was killed. He didn't have control. He didn't have the free, reckless abandon to be the master of his fate because that's just a fallacy. And so many people have used those words as their like rallying cry, like, I can do anything I set my mind to. I'm the master of my fate. Uh Uh-uh. You're not. I'd like us to sit at our seats and, and ask ourselves, where do we turn to for those answers of our identity questions? Do we look to the things of this world to fulfill our identity? Or do we look to the character of Jesus? And if we're truly honest in our hearts, where, wherever we're at in trusting this Jesus guy, we have room to grow. We have idols to lay down. We have misplaced affections that need correcting. We have sin that needs repenting of. And as the band plays, I want you to out loud, I'm calling you to do something. I want you to out loud respond to God. Just as Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? He knew their hearts. He knows everything. But why did he ask them? Because he knew the importance of saying something out loud for Jesus' sake. That there is power in calling out his name as Lord and Savior. There's power in verbally repenting of sins. There's power in the cries of our heart that have been there forever being vocalized. If we're in turmoil about our identity and we don't know what the next step is, what better place than to do this at the altar, at the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, at his feet. Don't miss out on this chance for for God to speak to you because you're afraid of who might hear it. We are all broken. We all have questions about identity. And we all need to turn to the only one who can answer them. The only one fit and worthy to find our true identity. We'll pray, Jesus, we love you, Lord. We thank you that you answer our heart's cries. You are big enough to respond to our biggest questions. You don't shy away from doubt or fear, but you welcome us in together. And you work through these things with us. You are not scared of what we've done. You are bigger than that. You are so worthy of our love and our affection. Let us cast down any idol we have that is not of you. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, come speak to our hearts, Lord. Soften our walls that we built up over the years, the habits we have control that we just can't let go of, Jesus. Holy Spirit, let us relinquish control to the only one worthy. Your ways are indeed higher than our ways. Let us live as if that is true. Let us put our money where our mouth is and actually trust you with our money, with our relationships, with our future. Jesus, those are scary words. Those are things we want to cling tight and hold on to. Oh, but if we don't let go of them, Lord, how can you ever bless them? Oh, Jesus, we trust you, Lord. Even now, Lord, thank you. Amen.